Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. The last couple of episodes, we explored the genesis of the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union and their drafting, ratification, text, and their remarkable achievements. As groundbreaking as these articles were, they were fundamentally flawed. In this episode, we'll explore the very arduous and troublesome period in American history following the American Revolution and before the adoption of the Constitution. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. And Sheila Guerin, thank you for your support. Now, the articles were flawed for a number of reasons. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on, Judge. We just can't start criticizing the Articles of Confederation. True, last episode we pointed out several tremendous achievements of the Articles themselves, but we should also recognize that Congress, operating under the Articles, also had several key successes indispensable to the future of the United States. For example, on February 6, 1778, the United States entered into the Treaty of Alliance and the Treaty of Amity and Commerce with France. Entered into after the Battle of Saratoga, this alliance was absolutely vital to America's War of Independence. It gained America a critical naval ally against the powerful British Navy as well as essential military supplies. With the entry of the French, the American Revolution blew up into a global conflict which bled British troops out of North America. The British Empire was forced to defend itself across the world and could no longer concentrate all of its offensive military might against the United States. This was critical to America's victory. Vive la France! Admittedly, as we learned in the last couple of episodes, when France and the United States entered the treaties, the Articles had not yet been officially ratified by the states, but the Congress had approved them back on November 15, 1777, and acted as if they were in effect. With the assistance of the French, the Continental Army and state militia troops won several major battles and persevered in a war of attrition to grind down the massive British military forces. The English Empire all but gave up on offensive operations after the Battle of Yorktown in 1781. The war ended with the English recognizing American independence with the Treaty of Paris on September 3, 1783. All of this occurred under the auspices of the Articles. Mike Gerard, there is no doubt those were impressive and crucial contributions of the Articles. The Articles were also successful in addressing some fundamental domestic issues. One of the overlooked accomplishments was the Land Ordinance of 1785. That Land Ordinance established the rules for the settlement of the lands west of the Appalachian Mountains. Under the land ordinance, land was surveyed and then sold. The survey system set up for the ordinance and its successors were eventually used to survey three-quarters of the continental United States. The system drew up townships of six square miles, divided into sections. The revenue of the land sales was used to pay for congressional programs and to pay down the war debt from the Revolutionary War. That's right, bombastic Brent Bassett. Another truly unprecedented achievement under the Articles was the adoption of the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. The Northwest Ordinance was based on Thomas Jefferson's draft of the Land Ordinance of 1784, which set the stage for the Land Ordinance of 1785 and the Northwest Ordinance. 
it eliminated any lingering claims of the original states to the otherwise unorganized political territory west of the Appalachian Mountains, north of the Ohio River, and east of the Mississippi River. The Northwest Ordinance provided that this massive territory would eventually become new states, and that those states would be on equal footing with the original states. The ordinance provided that at least three, and as many as five new states, would be carved out of the territory. Truth be told, the Northwest Ordinance became the home of the states of Ohio, Illinois, Wisconsin, Indiana, about a third of Minnesota, and our home state, Michigan. The ordinance established a key commitment to education. In fact, it specifically provided that religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. These were not mere idle words. Section 16 of the ordinance reserved a section of each township for school purposes, laying the groundwork, quite literally, for widespread common and public schools. Moreover, the Northwest Ordinance provided that at least one university would be created out of the territory. That was just the beginning, hence the Big Ten. Go Blue! The Northwest Ordinance also provided for basic government, composed of a governor, secretary, and three judges to be appointed by Congress when there was less than 5,000 white free men in a territory. Once that threshold was passed, an elected legislature would be established. Foreshadowing the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, a lengthy preamble provided in pertinent part for extending the fundamental principle of civil and religious liberty which form the basis whereon these republics, their laws, and constitutions are erected, to fix and establish those principles as the basis of all laws, constitutions, and governments, which forever hereafter shall be formed in the said territory. Accordingly, the Northwest Ordinance specifically protected religious freedom, property rights, the right to a jury trial, due process, equal representation in the legislature, and habeas corpus, which is a legal mechanism to ensure that people that are facing charges just don't rot in prison, but they're brought forward to a court to face the music. The Northwest Ordinance also banned excessive fines, cruel and unusual punishment, and ex post facto laws, which are laws that make a crime out of something that was legal at the time that it was performed. Ironically, Thomas Jefferson had prepared a draft of the Land Ordinance of 1784, which set the stage for the Land Ordinance of 1785 and Jefferson's draft prohibited slavery. That provision was deleted from the land ordinance in 1784, but was resurrected in the Northwest Ordinance. The Northwest Ordinance ensured that all would be free in the territory. Section 6 banned slavery and involuntary servitude. The importance of this freedom-guaranteeing provision cannot be overstated. As the northern states were slowly moving to eliminate slavery, the newly established territories would never have the stain of slavery. The North would be free. However, it did include a fugitive slave law provision. In other words, escaped slaveholders could require that enslaved persons who had fled the bondage be returned into slavery. Such a travesty. Okay, now that we've given the devil his due, we can discuss the flaws of the Articles of Confederation. 
Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, Mike Gerard. We just can't start criticizing the Articles of Confederation. True. Last episode, we pointed out several groundbreaking achievements of the Articles themselves. We've also recognized today that Congress operating under the Articles had several successes indispensable to the future of the United States. But we are forgetting another set of fundamental charters. The 13 states each had their own constitutions. To best understand the shortcomings of the Articles, we need to know something about the state constitutions, too. You know, Mike Gerard, the judge has an excellent point. With the revolution came an explosion of political and societal reform. The Declaration of Independence nearly propelled the states into the original state of nature. No longer bound to king or parliament, the 13 states were presented with a unique opportunity to restructure their governments, to bring to life a new social compact. Thomas Jefferson explained, Our revolution presented us an album on which we were free to write what we pleased. The states went about the work to adopt new state constitutions. Many features of modern government were first implemented. They were written fundamental charters, so everyone knew the rules. They were based on the idea of self-government. Legislatures and governors were elected by and accountable to free men. Nobility and royal privilege were abolished. Written bills of rights protecting individual rights were essential parts of the governing documents. Moreover, many of the state constitutions recognized the first principles of the rule of law, unalienable rights, limited government, the social compact, equality, and the right to alter or abolish oppressive governments. For example, the constitutions expressly recognized the unalienable nature of certain rights, the equality of men, and the origin of just government through the social compact. We tend to overlook these revolutionary-era documents, but the reality is that they established the strongest protections of unalienable rights in history. Unfortunately, many of the state constitutions were flawed. Prior to the American Revolution, the colonial governors were royal officials who often abused their power to implement unjust British policy. Inherently distrustful of kings and governors, the new states vested legislatures with the great bulk of power. As elected representatives of the people, most assumed that legislatures would be the strong guardians of the people. Governors became figureheads or sometimes replaced by a council. For instance, Pennsylvania replaced the governor with a 12-person executive council. Many states mandated that governors be elected by the legislature for short terms, making them nearly powerless or just puppets of the legislative bodies. Likewise, the judicial branch was often very weak and undefined. State legislatures exercised not only legislative power, but often exercised or dominated executive and judicial powers. Some states even adopted single-chamber, that is unicameral, legislatures, leaving all power in the hands of a few assemblymen which often acted quickly upon passion rather than cautiously upon reason. Critics also charged that the state legislatures were composed of less-than-able politicians who were often beholden to the more unsavory elements of society. Not only did the states vest nearly unchecked power in their respective legislatures, many appeared incapable of protecting liberty and maintaining public order. In particular, 
Shea's Rebellion in Massachusetts sent ripples of dread throughout the states. Historian Edmund Morgan explained. It was feared by many the whole country would degenerate into anarchy. Those who felt this way saw dreadful portent for the future and what happened in Massachusetts in the autumn of 1786. Farmers in the western part of the state hit hard by a combination of low prices and high taxes rose an armed rebellion under Daniel Shays and his men closed the courts in Berkshire, Hampshire, and Worcester counties, thus ending suits at law and preening creditors from collecting their debts. They defied the state government, and if the loyal militia of the state had not come to the rescue, the United States arsenal at Springfield would have fallen to an armed mob with the central government helpless to prevent it. Without men or money, it would be equally helpless to cope with future, possibly worse, threats of anarchy. Although defeated by the militia, many of the leaders of Shays' Rebellion were not only pardoned, but later elected to the Massachusetts State Legislature. In fact, many of the rebels' demands were subsequently enacted into law. This state of affairs sent shivers down the spines of many, many political leaders across the continent. They had not pledged their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor during the revolution so that mobs and civil disorder would replace parliament and king. In fact, the prevailing sentiment across the world was that the people were a rabble who did not have the character, education, self-restraint, and commitment to rule safely. The masses did not understand or care to protect the first principles of the rule of law, unalienable rights, limited government, the social compact, and equality. Classic political philosophy held as a nearly universal law that democracy would denigrate into mob rule. Mob rule would then give way to a strongman, a dictator who would bring order to chaos. Giving the people power was a recipe for disaster. Kings across the globe were watching, most likely rooting for America to prove that self-government would fail. In addition, classical theorists believed that if the people had power, they would abuse it by violating the property rights of the rich. That is, they would use the government to steal from the rich and give to themselves. And as if to prove the point of the naysayers and skeptics of self-government, many state governments unabashedly violated the inalienable right of property and all but ruined their financial systems. As the result of the revolution and the accompanied disruption of trade with Great Britain, many indebted farmers and merchants faced dire economic circumstances. In response, several state legislatures issued nearly worthless paper money and enacted debtor relief legislation that invalidated previously legitimate private contracts. Some legislatures delayed or reduced the payment of public and private debts, refused to pay their quotas of national expenses, and raised their own salaries by lowering those of other governmental officials. At the same time, many creditors' debts were paid with paper money issued as a wartime measure during the revolution. The result? Economic chaos and devastation. In a later age, Justice George Sutherland of the United States Supreme Court explained the consequence of the state's actions. 
Bonds of men, whose ability to pay their debts was unquestionable, could not be negotiated except at a discount of thirty, forty, or fifty percent. Real property, that is land, could be sold only at a ruinous loss. Debtors, instead of seeking to meet their obligations by painful effort, by industry and economy, began to rest their hopes entirely upon legislative interference. The impossibility of payment of public or private debts was widely asserted and in some instances threats were made of suspending the administration of justice by violence. The circulation of depreciated currency became common. Resentment against lawyers and courts was freely manifested, and, in many instances, the course of the law was arrested and judges restrained from proceedings in the execution of their duty by popular and tumultuous assemblies. Now, most Americans strongly believed in the inalienable rights of property and to pursue happiness without undue governmental interference. Pressured by debtors, many state governments broke with this tradition and placed under siege traditional property rights. In 1784, the petition from the town of Salem explained that such legislation was not founded not upon the principles of justice, but upon the right of the sword because no other reason can be given why the act was passed than because the legislature had the power and will to enact such a law. James Madison remarked that such laws are contrary to the first principles of the social compact and to every principle of sound legislation. Simply put, the new state legislatures infringed upon the fundamental rights of the citizens they were entrusted to protect. These and other abuses of the state strongly altered the political philosophy of Americans. Prior to the Revolution, many leaders' beliefs were rooted in the Greek, Roman, and English classical ideals of public virtue and republicanism. These leaders believed that the public was virtuous and that the consent of the majority legitimized governmental action. Combined with this understanding was the belief by many that the purpose of government was the public good and common welfare, and that all citizens were expected to further the public good. Since elected representatives were directly chosen by the people, the thought was that the people's representatives would work for the enlightened public good and common welfare. <laughs> Yes, they were really naive, weren't they? As Heath Ledger's Joker's laugh reveals, instead of enlightened bodies working for the greater good, state legislatures were violating traditional rights and enacting unjust laws. Their traditional zeal for republicanism soon evaporated. Many key political leaders, like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, reasoned that the actions of the state legislatures were motivated not by virtue, but by greed and licentiousness. Uh, there goes the judge again, using big words. Licentiousness means wanton disregard of law, custom, and tradition. Americans began to understand that unchecked state representatives of the people were to be as much feared as unbridled kings and royal governors. One contemporary journalist wrote, At the commencement of the revolution... It was supposed that what is called the executive part of government was the only dangerous part. But we see now that quite as much mischief, if not more, and as much arbitrary conduct acted by the legislature. 
Over time, the tyranny of the British appeared to be replaced with the tyranny of the legislatures. James Madison, brilliant as always, explained it this way. Wherever the real power in a government lies, there is a danger of oppression. In our governments, the real power lies in the majority of the community, and invasion of rights is chiefly to be apprehended, not from acts of government contrary to the sense of its constituents, but from acts in which the government is the mere instrument of the major number of constituents. John Francis Mercer declared at the Constitutional Convention that the state legislatures had become the epitome of the corruption of liberty. Elbridge Gerry similarly stated at the Constitutional Convention that The evils we experience follow from the excess of democracy. The people do not want virtue, but are the dupes of pretended patriots. The states had fallen from grace. While enacting the strongest protections of liberty known to man, the critical flaws of the state constitutions permitted their governments to infringe the unalienable rights of individuals. Although the states were established to protect liberty, they were threatening to devour it. And the Congress, under the Articles of Confederation, not only was unable to stop the states gone amok, it was part of the problem. The Articles lacked many of the vital attributes and powers necessary for a successful national government. Establishing a one-house legislative assembly, the Articles provided for voting by states, requiring nine states to pass substantial legislation, and unanimity for any amendment to the Articles. The government, while established to protect liberty, was so weak that it was ineffective in its primary and secondary purposes. Furthermore, the very nature of the Articles undermined their ability to effectively govern the nation and direct national policy. With no national executive or judicial branch, the laws of Congress could not be executed or enforced without the cooperation of the states. Congress, Hamilton observed, possessed no sanction to its laws because it had no power to exact obedience or punish disobedience to their resolutions. Jefferson explained that Congress's power was only requisitory, and these requisitions were addressed to the several legislatures to be by them carried into execution without other coercion than the moral principle of duty. This allowed, in fact, a negative to every legislature on every measure proposed by Congress, a negative so frequently exercised in practice as to benumb the action of the federal government and to render it inefficient in its general objects and, more especially, in pecuniary in foreign concerns. In addition, there was a fundamental flaw. The Articles of Confederation were a confederation of independent states. They did not act on or represent the people, just their state governments. Alexander Hamilton elaborated. The great and radical vice in the construction of the existing confederation is the principle of legislation for states or governments in their corporate or collective capacities and as contradistinguished from the individuals of whom they consist. In fact, 
This is one of the key attacks against the Articles of Confederation and arguments in favor of the ratification of the Constitution. Constitutional Convention Delegate James Wilson succinctly argued at the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention that the present Articles of Confederation is a confederation of sovereign states. Its principle is not the principle of free governments. The people of the United States are not, as such, represented in the present Congress and considered even as the component parts of the several states. They are not represented in proportion to their numbers and importance. In other words, there is no social compact of the people, just a confederation among independent states. It deprived the people of direct self-government. It also inevitably led to irreconcilable disputes that paralyzed the Congress. Indeed, each state, possessing distinct interests with regards to the major issues of the day, commonly refused to cooperate to formulate national policy. Even when such policies were developed, they could be ignored or overridden by individual states or by a block of states. The states often either refused to act in concert or failed to enforce congressional requests or edicts. Thus, the national government was all but inoperable. Not only did the passage and execution of national law rely solely upon state cooperation, Congress was dangerously weak. The Articles, for instance, did not empower Congress to extract taxes from the states or individuals, nor could it borrow money. Instead, Congress was forced to all but beg for operating monies from the states. The states often failed to meet their obligations, nor did the Articles authorize Congress to enforce any regulation of interstate commerce. The result was a series of interstate trade barriers and trade wars, usually fought with excise taxes or tariffs. The states printed their own currency and possessed their own custom services. Foreign policy was fraught with similar tribulations. Congress could not execute treaties independently, but only with the concurrence of the states. Yet, the states tended to act independently of Congress and each other. Some states passed laws violating the peace treaty with Great Britain and possessed their own independent navies to enforce contradictory foreign relations. Although Congress could declare war, it depended upon the generosity of the states to fund and wage it. In addition, because Congress was prohibited from maintaining a standing army, it relied heavily upon the state militias for the defense of the country. In fact, Congress was powerless, even in the face of domestic uprisings. Congress was incapable of aiding those states, like Massachusetts during Shays' Rebellion, that faced civil disorder. Ironically, the diametrically opposed issue existed in connection with what little power Congress had. Whatever power there was, was dangerously concentrated. The Articles vested its power solely in Congress. No executive or judiciary could check or balance oppressive congressional action. If there was planted in the Articles a seed of tyranny, it was the failure to maintain the separation of powers. In sum, the Articles failed. They did not unify the nation, but led to division and political chaos. In essence, each former colony possessed most of the attributes of national sovereignty, and Congress was at their whim. 
Not only were the autonomous states at times corrupt, but even when virtuous, they lacked the ability to unite into one nation. The Articles in the States had failed to protect liberty, the very reason for the revolution. Leading founding father, James Wilson, in his remarks at the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention of the Federal Constitution, explained it all quite eloquently. To the iron hand of tyranny, which was lifted up against America, she manifested indeed an intrepid superiority. She broke into pieces the fetters which were forged for her, and showed that she was an unassailable force. But she was environed by dangers of another kind, and spring from a very different source. While she kept her eye steadily fixed on the efforts of oppression, licentiousness was secretly undermining the rock on which she stood. The truth is, we dreaded danger only on one side. This we manually repelled, but on the other side, danger, not less formidable but more insidious, stole in upon us, and our unsuspicious tempers were not sufficiently attentive either to its approach or its operations. Those whom foreign strength could not overpower have well nigh become the victims of internal anarchy. We neglected to establish amongst ourselves a government which could ensure domestic vigour and stability. What was the consequence? The commencement of peace was the commencement of every disgrace and distress that could befall a people in a peaceful state. Devoid of national power, we could not derive a revenue from their excess. Devoid of national importance, we could not procure for our exports a tolerable sale of foreign markets. Devoid of national credit, we saw our public securities melt in the hands of the holders like snow before the sun. Devoid of national dignity, we could not, in some instances, perform our treaties on our parts, and, in others, we could neither obtain nor compel the performance of them on the part of others. Devoid of national energy, we could not carry into execution our own resolutions, decisions, or laws. Shall I become more particular still? The tedious detail would disgust me, nor is it now necessary. The proceedings of Congress and of the several states are replete with them. Undoubtedly, Wilson's remarks rang true. John Quincy Adams, the son of John, one of America's all-time leading diplomats and president himself, accurately reflected the mood of the country and the crisis. The numbness fell into an atrophy. The Union languished to the point of death. A torpid numbness seized upon all of its faculties. A chilling cold indifference crept from its extremities to the center. The system was about to dissolve in its own imbecility. Impotence in negotiation abroad, domestic insurrection at home, were on the point of bearing to a dishonorable grave the proclamation of a government found on the rights of man. The crisis gripped the new nation. Would the country unite and forge a new government based on first principles, or would the world's one hope for freedom collapse? Some key takeaways from this episode. Following the American Revolution, each state established its own constitution, the strongest written charters of liberty in world history. Despite their strength, many of the states were unable to protect the inalienable rights of the people. 
By giving the legislatures and the passions of the people too much power, property, due process, and other rights were threatened. Economic chaos prevailed. In addition, Shays' Rebellion was a warning shot to political leaders throughout the continent that public order and security was threatened. Meanwhile, the Articles of Confederation were dangerously defective, providing almost none of the powers necessary to protect individual liberties and ensure the security of the nation, investing what little power it had solely in Congress. Young America was facing another existential crisis, whether it could survive self-government. The world's greatest experiment in liberty was on the precipice of disaster. Join us next time when we explore how Americans reacted to the crisis brilliantly by calling the Constitutional Convention. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two terrific patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skinechny, who is our sound designer and fabulous bartender, and Bombastic Brent Bassett, who is also a fabulous bartender. When those two get together, watch out. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about our first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, and flags from American history, along with all the terrific resources we have to offer. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.